Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Joel Holland. For this episode, I spoke to Andy Laub, self-professed foreign policy wonk and next-gen fellow at Foreign Policy for America. We talked about Biden and Harris' first 100 days, the voting rights and George Floyd policing bills that Republicans are blocking in the Senate, and the big immigration and foreign policy challenges that the Biden administration faces. Thank you so much for coming on the Progressive Britain podcast. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for the opportunity. So you're currently working on a mayoralty campaign in Westchester, is that correct? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that is correct, uh, Joe. Uh, I am uh, working for, uh, it's technically a town supervisor. So if we, we, we like to make things complicated in New York politics. So we have several villages that are within a town or a city. Uh, and things like that. So I, I live in a small village that's part of a larger town. Um, and I'm working for a, a man named Paul Feiner, who's a well-known actually name uh, locally, who actually has probably about 100% name recognition, mostly known for his constituent services, is that he's a person, we're a town of about 95,000 you know, or so, and he rides you know, around in his car, in his old car, with uh, a thing on top of his roof that says the mobile problem solver, town supervisor, Paul Feiner, with all of his inf- contact information. He That's gives great. out his cell number, his email, and y- it makes a difference um, for people because, you know, you call him, you email him about a pothole in front of your street. He forwards it to the Department of Public Works. It gets done by the next day. And uh, most recently, he created something called a COVID angels program for the town, where a team of 200 volunteers assisted in getting over 4,000 seniors um, the COVID vaccine. So that was really um, something special. So he's um, more unusual of a um, politician. And he's really, he doesn't consider himself a politician. And 30 years into the job, he's still the outsider when it comes to politics. So that's, and he's who got me started. So that's sort of is what's given me sort of what I think is more of a unique approach um, to progressive politics in making that personal touch. Very interesting. And um, 
it's very it's it's primary season really isn't it because there's also the new york mayor new york city yes. mayor primary um have you been keeping track of that have you been following it what do you think about the uh current candidates and what chance they have well you know it's it's sort of a it's sort of a weird kind of race it's one where you know there's no clear front runner obviously it's an empty See, because Mayor de Blasio is not running uh, again. Um, so you have quite a lot of candidates. Um, and we have something new, in not in my part in Westchester County, but in New York City called rank choice voting. So you pick, you rank, you know, uh, who, you know, who you're based on favorability, who your choice is uh, for voting. So if you vote, um, so your second choice could also really matter a lot because those who are polling below, you know, who get a, a certain percentage, they're going to start to bottom out. And then um, that's where your second choice also will come in, you know, to play. So you really have to think about voting for two people, which is new for uh, a lot of folks. You have obviously New York City in its own national as you know, one of the biggest cities in the world, uh, reputation. Um, you have somebody like Andrew Yang who ran for president on a um, universal-based income, giving $1,000 a month to every American. Um, now, sort of, uh, he was very popular then. Right now, not uh, as much. He started out with a lot of uh, potential. Um, the New York City press definitely can be um, a tough group, but he also, I think, in what a lot of experts have said, has made some, uh, you know, stumbles when it comes to some of the things that he said. And he also doesn't really have that many ties to the city. But then on the other hand, the person who is um, the next in line, you know, who seems to be doing well right now is um, a man named Eric Adams, who is the Brooklyn Borough mm -hmm. President. And what's interesting is he is, um, you know, African-American, but he also is a former police officer and a more conservative Democrat who, you know, supports policies like stop and frisk, you know, when it comes to the police, which was a very controversial thing that um, from the last, you know, mayoral's race and in city politics. So it, it, it certainly um, is interesting. And with this ranked choice voting, it's anybody's game. Well, uh, members of the Labour Party will be familiar with ranked choice voting because the majority of our elections internally are now STV, single transferable vote elections. So we're very familiar with that. Right. And that's how the party now functions a lot of the time. Um, it is shaping up to be a very interesting race. And uh, New York's such a melting pot, but also people are so proud of being New Yorkers. And I do think that Andrew Yang not being from New York has hurt him over the last few months. And that was that was there was that tweet where he was getting the subway up to the Bronx. And I think he and said he was going to get the, the wrong subway or something, and people did not let him forget that. So, And then uh, going to the – there's a famous uh, club in New York City, Democratic – party club called the Stonewall Democrats that are based on, you know, the incident that happened in the eighties with, um, uh, the, uh, LGBTQ, uh, club course, was, you know, raided by the police. And he kind of, he didn't do a very good job in his speech there by talking about his gay friend. Um, not, okay. it was seen as sort of an insensitive, not very smart approach to, um, getting that group's endorsement, which of course he did not, Unsurprisingly, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a very interesting primary. I mean, I, I assume that, that the primary is the big race, really. I mean, the it Democrat is. nomination is going to be the mayor, um, barring some very, very crazy turn of events. So 
um, yeah, really interesting to see what happens. Turning to a slightly bigger campaign, which you worked on back in 2012, yes. Obama's second race yes. um, to the White House. And I remember the first one back in 2007 and eight when I was following it from England. And there was this incredible aura around any conversation about Obama, about Barack Obama, because he just was automatically such a hero um, over here. When you look at America over here, you see one of the primary things you notice is the problems of race that America's had historically and currently. And so just to see a black man with such um, charisma and, and, you know, left-wing politics running for that, for, for the role, it was just, it was such a hopeful time. And in 2012, I was actually in New York and Obama came for the debate at Hofstra. Um, I was unfortunately yes. away with the football team, with the soccer team. So I didn't get to see him, which is my biggest regret for my time in New York. But um, I also remember in 2012, it was the same. The, the, the love for the man and the excitement around him was the same as if he was running for the first time, I felt. So what was it like for you being co-chair of students um, for Obama, correct, in New York? What was that like for you at the time? Yeah, that's uh, correct. Uh, and I also actually worked on um, President Obama's first campaign in 2008. And I was in... Um, you know, more actually was on the ground, you know, for oh, New really? Yorkers, okay. the, the, for New Yorkers, the common thing is to go to Pennsylvania. And um, I was there on the ground in Pennsylvania in 2008. I was just, uh, um, you know, graduated college right in the middle of the 2012. Um, oh, tell, you have to tell you us know, about campaign. both things. Tell us about how it felt in both years. You know, it's that's a great question, Joe. Because in 2008, there was just such a hope. There were you could feel that that hopeful energy you talked about, because you know more young people than ever involved in politics and, you know, people tired of the Bush administration and the two uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan dragging on. And, and here is just this, this hopeful guy, this really smart, you know, guy, as you said, African-American, breaking down that racial barrier, um, you know, coming to chart a new path. And interestingly, in 2012, it was a little bit, a little bit different, but, you know, there was a lot of that same feeling from those, you know, who really believed in him. But like, you know, after the 2010 election where the Republicans took over um, the House of Representatives, you know, people naturally, progressives were naturally frustrated that more wasn't, you know, accomplished. But, you know, and there was more just negativity in the media about, you know, President Obama, you know, especially um, seizing uh, on the Benghazi, uh, attacks by the Republicans, which I thought, and many as well, thought was disgraceful, and the killing of our um, ambassador Chris Stevens, and turning that into a political talking point. You know, I, I think with all the hope that um, uh, of being the first Black president, it also unleashed, unfortunately, a lot of racism on the other side that I believe were the same forces that led to Donald Trump. And we can, you know, talk more about that at some point or another. But um, so in 2012, there was just kind of a, a little bit more uh, of a sense that, you know, the media just kind of portraying it that, that Obama was vulnerable and that Republicans picking, I mean, can you even imagine how the environment has changed? Mitt Romney was his uh, opponent. But Romney also was somebody, as we see now, he, he's spoken out against, you know, Trump and has uh, worked with Biden on some things, um, you know, and, and he even I remember seeing when he voted against one of Trump's judges 
because that person had said, um, you know, Obama was born in Kenya. And he goes, and this is personal for me because I ran against President Obama, but I in every way rejected that he was somehow not really an American. You know, okay, what happened to the politics of that? So I think there was definitely more anxiety that, that President Obama, you know, could lose, certainly in the media. It was portraying it that way. But there was still, as you were saying, that sense of hope and that sent that energy really for how important it was that he be returned to office so that he could continue doing the job you know, that he was doing. And what we did at Students for Obama, where I was co-chair, as you mentioned, in New York, we sort of had an adopt-a-campus program where every school, you mentioned that you went to uh, Hofstra. I went to, um, not too far away, Fordham in the Bronx, um, where each um, campus in New York, a New York school, was paired with a Pennsylvania, had a sister school in Pennsylvania, where we would send our student and youth volunteers to um, to go there and meet up with their counterparts in Pennsylvania and spend weekends, you know, canvassing and phone banking and just, you know, and, and this was also a part of the Biden campaign that I was involved with last year was just having counterparts, you know, you became friends with and sort of where you adopted certain territories like Arizona or, you know, Pennsylvania, whatever it may be, um, for where, you know, you made calls to and such, or where you texted, uh, you know, to a lot of different ways to campaign now in the uh, hopefully soon to be post-COVID uh, era. But, you know, that, that was one thing that was particularly fascinating with me was getting to interact with universities throughout New York and in Pennsylvania, with, having that same energy and determined mission. And for our UK listeners, the the fact that Pennsylvania is the place where you're doing this is important because that's a massive swing state with a huge number of electoral votes. And as I'm sure a lot of listeners remember from November, it's always very important in presidential elections. So if you're in New York, a campaigning for the Democrat, Democratic candidate in New York is often pointless, right? So there's use your resources right. and energy elsewhere. Um, really interesting that you say that you thought that after four years, some of the antagonism towards Obama was building up um, based on his race, even more so than it was before the first campaign. Um, and of course, I remember that clip of John McCain as well, who was his 2008, yes. uh, running for the Republicans in 2008, where he turns to the woman in the town hall and says, no, no, Obama's not a terrorist or you know, Obama's a good family man. And uh, it's striking that you say that because you now look at the Republican Party and they seem to have lost almost every ounce of morality that they ever possessed. Um, and Tennessee quotes eight years eight years in power by Tennessee quotes. Not sure if you read that. He's an Atlantic writer, philosopher, but he makes the argument that he thinks, like you said, Donald Trump came from eight years of Obama, and that America was so angry, a lot of America was so angry that a black man had been in power for eight years that they voted for the antithesis of Barack Obama. You, so you do see that as something central that happened in twenty sixteen. Oh, absolutely, and I think it's interesting because there was such a thing as the Obama-Trump voter, ones who voted more likely in 2008 for Obama um, and um, also voted for, uh, you know, Donald Trump. People may, you know, there certainly was a, a race factor, that's for sure, but also people, you know, who, you know, felt a certain frustration, you know, a, a generation of lost jobs 
from things, you know, that that can be blamed on, you know, trade agreements like, you know, NAFTA or uh, other things, right? But also, so Trump's rhetoric in particular, that that angry sort of confrontational style made it him seem authentic to, to many angry Americans um, in the middle of the country. But the jobs that he promised would come back um, did not. And very different uh, from Obama, percent. right? In his kind of thoughtful, composed way of speaking. Trump is very different. Very different. You know, it, it's, yeah. You know, and Obama, the, the Constitution, we even see it with Joe Biden. President Biden, because, you know, a lot of people said it's going to be a third term of Obama, even, you know, as well as vice president. But you still see a different uh, approach because somebody like um, President Biden, who spent, you know, so many years in the Senate, you know, versus somebody like Obama, you know, who was new, who was a constitutional law professor, a thoughtful, deliberative guy versus somebody like Biden, you know, who wants to, you know, make decisions, you know, you know, quickly, you know, uh, at a more rapid pace. He always complained during the Obama administration, there were too many meetings. Um, and, you know, President Obama used to go around the room to everybody to say, uh, to ask their opinion. And, you know, he does the same thing with Vice President Kamala Harris, then having, you know, the vice presidency be the vice president, be that last person in the room uh, when it comes to making a major decision, especially when it comes to um, uh, national security and foreign policy, but also it's just, you know, a very different time. You know, the world is not the same as you well know, and you've seen, um, you know, in the UK is, is, is in a very different place than it was um, when President Obama left office in 2016. And one of those huge factors which changed the political uh, makeup of America over the last decade or so, was the 2008 financial crash. And we've had a lot of huge events since. I mean, the coronavirus, of course, and Trump's election was destabilizing. And there's been a lot of other huge global events over the past decade. But the 2008 financial crisis for me was the cutoff point between when my life as a child was kind of happy and, and, and normal. And then suddenly the whole world economy's collapsed and, and everything seems very real. You worked for Elizabeth Warren um, in 2000 and remind me what year that was that? It was her first election in 2012. And how was that? How was it working with someone who was really one of the most outspoken people against the Wall Street at the time and ran a very avowedly anti-Wall Street campaign, was kind of chastised by like the political director of the Chamber of Commerce called uh, um, the biggest threat to free enterprise in, in America. So what was it like yes. working for her at that time? I mean, amazing because Elizabeth Warren is just so much, is just so, such a dynamic and special in a human being in terms of how smart she is and how well she explains. You know, she really thinks things through. If you recall her presidential campaign in the primary of last year, it was she has a plan for that. Um, so she, she really is a, um, a force onto herself. Um, the Chamber of Commerce, of course, is quite a far right wing organization that likes to use hyperbole like that. But, you know, and what I, I laugh when I sort of hear those quotes, because Elizabeth Warren is actually uh, one of the biggest believers in free enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, and she actually, you know, um, you know, she, you know, calls herself, you know, a capitalist, but, you know, account an accountable 
capitalist by making sure that such financial large financial institutions you know sort of don't um you know get a free pass in terms of all the money that you know is is that that you know um that goes around uh, on wall street and how it has influenced you know politics as well as um the economy and that if certain, you know, regulations that are in place that can make sure that, you know, that's not necessarily anti. I know it's perceived by them as, as you know, like, like as you were saying, anti-free enterprise, but just making sure that there are rules in place so, you know, that we can follow to have it. And that's actually one of the big splits that she and um, her friend Bernie Sanders had during the primary in 2020. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders had pointed out at one point um, you know, Elizabeth Warren says she's a capitalist, you know, through her bones. You know, I disagree with that. You know, he's famously said he, you know, he's not a capitalist. He's a democratic socialist. So you did see a lot of people equated Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders during the primary. But you still saw, you know, even while both progressive, you still saw a much more within the system kind of reform minded focus among supporters of Elizabeth Warren versus those of Senator Sanders who just kind of want to um, dismantle um, a lot of things, which is how, why in many ways he was compared to, um, to, to Trump. But in, in uh, going back to your original question about how did it feel, you know, in 2012 knocking on doors, I mean, it was very exciting. You know, but it was also very, you know, divided. Massachusetts, as as you well know, being um, uh, given that we've given you New York citizenship, um, is, is quite a bit more, even, even though it is democratic, but it's more culturally conservative than New York, mm. you know, and places like Boston and, and sort of its old, you know, the old Irish, you know, uh, heritage, you know, crowd. So people had a lot of feelings. She didn't win that race by a lot because she was going up against an incumbent, Scott Brown, who famously won Ted Kennedy's, you know, seat after President Obama was elected. So you had very mixed reactions in Massachusetts. You had people who loved her and people who hated her and were siding with Scott Brown. I remember just, you know, holding signs out for her, you know, out, um, uh, near Cape Cod and a traffic circle. And you got as many, you know, honks in for in support of her and as many thumbs down, especially from motorcycles, <laughs> you know, folks, um, you know, that you did. So, you know, that, that really was the tenor of it. Um, and it did, of course, help. And she, of course, did win. And it did help that it was a presidential year. We're in a state that President Obama won easily, you know, as well, that she could be running with him together. And then her and Obama had a um, somewhat tenuous relationship as she pushed him to um, start the Consumer Protection Bureau, right? And she was very instrumental in that. And I think at times, reading Obama's memoir, at times he was a little bit frustrated with the way in which she pursued it. But it just shows that no matter whether she calls herself a democratic socialist or a, a, a regulatory capitalist, she is um, she cares about consumers, about people, about citizens. Um, and I, I mean, I hugely, I, I have to try and be objective on this podcast, but I wish she'd won. Um, something, some democratic primary over the last few years, because I think she would have been excellent um, with as much power as you can give her, really. <laughs> um, looking at the most powerful woman in America currently, Kamala Harris, and, um, well, her or Nancy Pelosi, depending on how you look at it, and um, <laughs> the president, Joe Biden, how do you feel about Harris and Biden's first 100 and 
hundred or so days? How do you think they've done? What, what's impressed you the most? I mean, they've spent almost five trillion dollars, so that's that's a, that's something. Um, how do you feel about it? What did you think they were going to do, and how is what they've done compared to that? You know, I, I've been very impressed for for the most part with the first hundred days, especially domestically. I mean, the COVID relief plan and getting that through, and not even one Republican you know, voting for it. But, you know, they're happy when they get the money and they're happy to, you know, cut the ribbons at things that, that made it possible. But um, that was just a huge, you know, deal. Just because, you know, you have so, you know, cutting child poverty in half and, you know, just really in providing that assistance for people who are just in so much need um, was so key. It, it made a difference and, you know, he almost made it look easy. And I think that is where President Biden's experience, you know, having been in the Senate for so long really comes in, you know, key. You know, you have a proposed um, infrastructure bill. America badly needs, and I'm sure, Joe, you know this, having been on both sides of the pond, um, our infrastructure needs a lot of work. Your, there are some um, dangerous potholes on the west of the Atlantic, for sure. Dangerous potholes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and yeah, it's, it, there has been a lot of money spent. I, I think, you know, obviously we are going to need to look at the deficit at some point. But I think that you stimulate the economy first and get people, you know, you lift to help them lift off their bootstraps. Like the way somebody, you look at the Bill Clinton model. And how he was able to leave office with a surplus uh, in the end. It's funny because many Republicans who have long cared and you know about the debt. You, if you recall, several of the battles about raising the debt ceiling with President Obama, um, who long cared about debt, and we saw how much President Trump spent um, on tax cuts. You know, three trillion dollars in tax cuts for the wealthiest uh, of Americans. Um, so, you know, I, I overwhelmingly uh, approve of, of Biden and Harris, um, you know, things. And, and even when there have been controversial things um, like Afghanistan, you know, he, he didn't sit around and debate a whole lot. He, he kept his, you know, commitment. Nothing's ever going to be 100 percent. I wish that he would have um, publicly been in this most recent round between um, Israel and Gaza. I think that there was a chance to more publicly, you know, sort of help for the administration to mediate um, for both sides. I mean, they did do it. It's, again, something he learned while vice president. And he's obviously known somebody like Prime Minister Netanyahu for a long time um, that uh, that. It wasn't going to be as successful poking him in the eye publicly, but privately doing, engaging with diplomatic, um, uh, you know, engagements to help bring about that ceasefire. Of course, it's very tenuous. I just wish, I wish he would have been out there, you know, a little bit more with it. But I think overall, foreign policy wise, uh, engaging with our allies, especially NATO, which I, is a, a prized uh, institution for both of our countries. And um, seeing what it went through under President Trump, uh, former President Trump, I like to say, uh, and now um, you know that that recommitment on the global stage to our allies um, is just so key. So I, I've been, uh, you know, quite impressed. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And he set his stall out very early, didn't he, on that first day with signing dozens of executive orders on some of the major things that Trump had um, some of the major Obama advances that Trump had reneged on and some additional terrible things that Trump had done. Um, and that was a real, real huge sign when he did that. And it's felt like in 24 hours, the world had, the world had changed. Um, but my question is, what does he have to do before 2022 midterms to make the Democrats do well in that election? Because like you said before, the 2010 midterms were Obama's downfall in many ways. And six years after that, he had such limited power. So what does Biden need to do? What does Harris need to do before the 2022 midterms? And I'm asking this question on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, when the George Floyd Policing yes. Act has still not gone through the Senate and the vote, Voting Rights for the People Act 2021 is still languishing in the Senate. And there's a lot of bills that the Democrats can't push through without abandoning the filibuster. So what can Biden and Harris realistically do on these kind of these significant fundamental cultural issues and and additionally in, in, elsewhere in policy going forward to make sure that the Democrats do well in 2022? Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. I mean, there's obviously so many different combinations of issues that you can, um, you know, put together, especially for a legislative, um, you know, item. And you know, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the George Floyd Policing Act. There actually is a little bit. There is some optimism on that. Um, Republican Senator uh, Tim Scott, the only um, Republican African American senator, has been. Uh, uh, the point person of negotiation on this. I think that there are some disagreements between the parties on, you know, how much you can and how far you can go in terms of the, um, the protections of a police officer versus the liabilities of them as well. So I think that one should have some more bipartisan support. But, you know, you're right. Uh, you mentioned voting rights and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So important. Because we have uh, seen since President Biden's victory, the Republicans do in states what they do best, and that is cheat. 
things like mm. voter ID. We've seen, you know, the state of, you know, Florida, potential Republican contender Ron DeSantis, you know, signed a, a massive voting restriction bill, as well as in Georgia, a place that was so essential to President Biden's victory there, the first one since President Clinton in 1992. So I think voting rights are really at the top of the agenda because on the state level, that's going to be something that the Republicans really look to to help themselves in 2022. So I think passing the Voting Rights Act is very fundamental. And you have the um, Senator uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who won, of course, in, in Georgia, along with uh, Biden, um, uh, you know, championing um, this bill. So I think there's going to have to be, you know, uh, you know, between infrastructure there is the climate change conference in Glasgow later this year. And I think, you know, just showing how, you know, thing, you know, tangible results for the American people, as well as that, that voting rights act, because now that it's going to be harder to vote, especially for the our more vulnerable communities that are supportive of Democrats, we need that protection, you know, in there. So that, um, you know, not only that uh, we can win, but we can, um, you know, sustain it before too much damage is done. And it's I mean, it's that that act is everything really, isn't it? Because like you mentioned, Florida, Georgia, and I think the Arizona Republican legislature over the last couple of weeks has also passed a restrictive voting rights law. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I saw recently that there's a couple uh, Republican senators who are saying they could get behind a milder, weaker version of the For the People 2021 Act, which basically reaffirms the 1965 um, Civil Rights Act. But but if the which and I I think the Democrats should reject that. I think they should go for the for the for the whole For the People Act 2021. But there's a 50-50 split in the Senate. So if the Democrats want yes. to pass that, they need 60 to pass the to bypass the filibuster. What do you say to the argument that if the Republicans refuse and they're still reticent to support this bill, mm-hmm. what do you say to the suggestion that Democrats should do away with the filibuster and just pass whatever they want, 50 votes, and give VP Kamala Harris the deciding vote for the next two years to pass whatever they want? I think that there are inevitably going to be some situations where that's going to be necessary. We saw it with the COVID relief bill. We may have to see it again uh, with the infrastructure bill, but you do see President Biden and Vice President Harris engaging with Republican leaders in Congress on an issue like infrastructure uh, and stuff like that. I think on voting rights, I think you're absolutely right. I think we, unfortunately, as you know, this, there, we don't have voting about active voting rights thing because the Supreme Court threw it out several, uh, a couple years ago. So I think Incredibly. we do have to big. And I think that, um, you know, I think that we're not going to see, unfortunately, just being, knowing Washington the way I do, we're not going to see any big changes with the filibuster anytime right. that soon. Um, unless, you know, the 2022 elections turn out more um, to our favor. But yes, I do think that it has to be done away with. Uh, because it's an ancient relic based on systemic racism and slavery, the origins of, of the, the worst of America. So I, I think um, you know, that, that it's necessary. You know, of course, you know, the, the Democrats did it, you know, something several years ago called the nuclear option for certain bills where you could pass it with a simple majority at 51 and then the Democrats lost the Senate. So then Mitch McConnell was able to use that same 
tactic to get um, Neil Gorsuch passed um, as a Supreme Court justice um, after holding up um, Merrick Garland, now the Attorney General, when he had been nominated for Supreme Court. Yeah, the the biggest, I mean, the most effective and frustrating instance of political gaslighting I've ever seen, I think, Mitch McConnell refusing to confirm Obama's Supreme Court judge and then doing the same thing in the last few days of Trump's presidency was, yeah, really frustrating. On the Supreme Court, what do you think about the idea that some Democrats propose of packing the Supreme Court? Because, of course, if we can't get the For the People 2021 Act passed, then the other way that states can combat these restrictive voting laws is by taking the states to court. But there's no point doing that if we don't have an amenable Supreme Court. So what do you say to the Democratic idea of packing the Supreme Court with more more judges? Well, you know, I certainly think it's an idea worth exploring, and I think which is what President Biden is doing. Um History is unfortunately not on our side on that issue, as you recall. Uh, uh, President Roosevelt uh, tried doing that and was uh, was stopped, you know, uh, from it. Um, so, but it's also something along with the filibuster that's just going to be such a heavy lift in terms right. uh, of of doing and even possibly sustaining. You know, the Constitution does not specify a number, but you know the. You know, there are all sorts of questions, you know, about it. But I think President Biden is going about it the right way by saying we should at least look at the issue. You know, you have now, um, you know, with unfortunately after progressive icon Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, like you were just saying, and the way Mitch McConnell was able to get um, now Justice Barrett on the court and that six to three conservative majority. Yeah, that that that's a tough one for a lot of progressives, and you have a lot of issues like abortion coming up uh, now. You have states, oh, yeah. Republican states, really looking to restrict it where they can, and looking to get that up through the federal level, where Roe v. Wade is definitely um, in danger, and calls for President Biden to um, make you know to codify Roe v. Wade in legislative language. Two long shots, the filibuster and packing the Supreme Court. They just yeah, seem like definitely. such. I mean, it just it, obviously you're right about the point that the Republicans having that same power, you know, it's not something that bears thinking about. But you do look at the next two years and you, you wonder what happened, what might happen in 2022, and you don't want to see two years of a lame duck Joe Biden and four years of a lame duck Kamala Harris. That would be, um, t- you know, too much frustration to bear. But um, turning to the uh, southern border, because that's something that's been hugely in the news over recent weeks. Um, of course, Trump instigated Title 42, saying that you can turn people away at the southern border for health reasons, as a kind of ostensibly a COVID um, policy, but um, it matched Trump's antagonism towards immigrants. Um, but Biden has kept that in place at the moment and he's been criticized because then a lot of migrant families are sending children um, by themselves to the border because Biden's policy is allowing children. Um, into the country, but not whole families under the Title 42. And it all seems a bit messy. Now, you were chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Is that correct? You uh, assistant. I, uh, I, I worked for the former uh, chair, Congressman, who chaired the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Elliot. And so were you involved in immigration a lot during that period? That was, that was my big issue as a liaison. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, sort of uh, an interagency kind of person in helping constituents. So the big thing on the federal level is immigration 
and just given, you know, let's, uh, and with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, now, let's not forget the Department of Homeland Security is still fairly new. In retrospect, it was only created after 9-11. So immigration always used to be, I, I um, saw my uh, own grandparents, um, uh, you know, uh, citizenship um, uh, placards, and, you know, it said Department of Justice on them. So oh. um, it, it's interesting, you know, that move, you know, it, it um, I mean, America's immigration system is fundamentally broken. Let's be honest about it. You know, and in most of the cases that I got with immigration, they would kind of, the Department of Homeland Security would come back to me and say, sorry, according to, you know, the Naturalization Act of 1952, you know, that's really the last time a big thing was taken on immigration. That That's a long time ago. Wow. You know, we haven't really passed, you know, that many meaningful reforms. Now, going to the southern border, um, I think, you know, uh, it has to do with really still getting immigration under control in the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Homeland Security. They need to hire many more judges. That's one of the things because in immigration courts, and here's another thing that make, makes life more difficult. Immigration courts are then under the Justice Department. So you're dealing oh. with all these different agencies and bureaucracies that just mm -hmm. slow everything down and make it more complicated. So they need to have many more um, asylum officers down. This is obviously a problem President Biden inherited from President Trump's, former President Trump's awful, um, you know, draconian heartless immigration policy of separating uh, children from their parents and unaccompanied minors. There's so many issues to resolve in immigration, but we fundamentally have to have more officers down there that can process asylum, uh, you know, seekers at a more, at a quicker pace because it, right now the Department of Homeland Security just doesn't have the capacity and that's where you see all those, you know, heart-wrenching pictures of people in tents and things like that. We of and of course we need. So that's a short-term thing, right? More, more, you know, hiring as well as lifting the cap, which President Biden did after a little bit of backlash, um, you know, for not doing it as soon as he was going to. But lifting that cap of refugees that we are allowed to, engaging with the UN on and the and the refugee agency. Uh, and such to, to have a more robust resettlement program. Those are some short-term things, but of course we need to pass, and this will be no easy feat, comprehensive immigration reform in Congress. President Bush tried to do it uh, and couldn't. President Obama, even they, they had the votes uh, in the Senate, but Speaker Boehner famously at the time wouldn't bring it up in the house for a vote. So that's what really needs, you know, to happen in order to sort of, as well as the engagement that's happening with vice president Harris at the helm of the Southern border, you know, um, issue dealing with those triangle, you know, countries, um, restoring the aid to them that, pre that former president Trump took away that so they can help stem the flow you know, from them all the way, you know, to our southern border. So, uh, but fundamentally, America's immigration system needs massive reforms. And do you see those short-term solutions 
um, Kamala Harris influence, like you say, in in, in southern central America, central and southern America, and uh, the increased capacity, like you say, that is required for for the um, the two departments that work on immigration, the government. Do you think those solutions will do enough to stop immigration being a huge weapon for the Republicans in 2022 and 2024? Because we know they're going to use it. We know that they're going to appeal yes. to people who voted for Trump, a lot a lot of people who may have voted for Trump because of immigration, whether or not it's valid or, you know, is irrelevant. Right. Do you think that Biden can do enough in the next two years to, to stop that happening, stop that being a huge talking point? I think that you know, that's certainly an excellent question. I think that it's going to be a huge talking point um, regardless. I mean, but I think that there are at least the path I think that we're currently on. There have been reports of facilities being less crowded and uh, of reuniting more children um, with their families. There's a task force on that. So I, I think that there's definitely room for there to be you know, through that engagement, um, you know, with Central and South American countries, where if we, you know, um, you know, stem it from being a huge, you know, flow, right, that, that it certainly takes the power, because as you said, they, as we said, they're, they're going to use it no matter what, right, the Republicans, right. that's red meat for their base. But we certainly have the power to take that talk, talk, talking point more away from them by initiating these short-term reforms that can help alleviate the, the crisis. Yes, I do believe so. Well, that sounds, uh, uh, that's good. That's positive. Um, it's very interesting that you say it's an issue of capacity and to hear it from you, someone with experience in the area. Um, so turning to more broader foreign policy issues, you, you spoke about them earlier. Um, I think it's really refreshing to see someone like Anthony Blinken on the global stage instead of the people that Trump had running around um, yes. with their kind of crazy and um, America first policy. Um, how do you see these big challenges for Biden coming up? I think today Jen Psaki announced that he's going to meet Putin on June 16th, I believe, in Geneva. That's correct. So that's a big meeting. Uh, do you think Russia is the biggest foreign policy issue with Biden or do you see it as China? Do you see it as Iran? Um, and how do you, and how do you think whatever the two or three biggest issues is, how do you think he approaches them? Yeah, definitely all of the above, you know, it's, uh, you know, as you well know, we, you know, you don't get to, a lot of times you don't get to choose, you know, the events that happen in the world. You're, a lot of it is responding to it. We saw that with, uh, you know, Israel-Palestine just now, and we're going to, you know, see it again with the Iranian elections in June, uh, where there's poised to be a much more hardline uh, president um, uh, elected. And you have talks going on right now in Vienna that have made some progress, but you have to think that that will be, uh, that there will be some impact by those elections, even though both sides have played it down. Um, you know, uh, you know, you know, Russia, certainly, you know, you have to walk and chew your gum at the same time. People, President Biden has, you know, pushed, you know, definitely taken a much, as you were saying, somebody, you know, like, uh, like with Trump's especially approach with Russia. Right. You know, we know about that whole relationship uh, that Trump and Putin had. And I think what President Biden has shown and smartly is that we can still engage with 
you know, you know, folks that we're in an adversarial relationship where there are serious disagreements, you know, whether it's on Alexei Nelvani, election interference, hacking, right? Other things that we can still, you know, push back on that while still engaging, like signing an, a five-year extension. Everybody thought the extension of the START treaty was dead because Biden was coming into office and it got a, a five-year extension almost just like that by both sides, because where there's mutual interest, you know, for, you know, big powers like, you know, the U.S. and Russia, there will be that cooperation and it's important for it to be. But yeah, I definitely think China, if I had to, you know, pick one, I definitely think China is, is really? the big one because while we see um, Biden taking a very different path on uh, Russia than Trump, we're seeing some similarities on China approach in terms of taking a very, you know, uh, tough stance. We saw not a very successful first meeting between Secretary Blinken and um, his counterpart and foreign ministry at um, in Alaska. Um, you know, it's interesting how the Chinese have brought up thing, domestic U.S. things like Black Lives Matter to show, you know, the human rights situation isn't so great in the U.S. either for criticizing Chinese, you know, human rights. But China really is because it is such an economic power, because, you know, it's it, you know, it's making deals all over the world in places like Iran, you know, there uh, where they you know, trade oil in, in throughout the continent of Africa. You know, and obviously the um, contentious points with the South China Sea, Taiwan, you know, other things, you know, where they were there in the driver's seat and things also like, you know, disagreements of intellectual property theft. You're seeing that relationship continue to go in a, a bit of an, in a negative direction. I think that, that a new Cold War is not in any buddy or in either side's interests. So I do hope to see some more cooperation on things like, you know, climate change and other important, uh, you know, issues. But we're going to continue to see economic competition as well as um, security, you know, areas where we are at odds with China um, on things like the South China Sea and the island and the territorial um you know, things that, uh, that they have. So I, I still think given that, you know, Russia's economy is the size of Spain's, you know, with, you know, having such a population, China is, is catching up to the U.S. very fast and especially with its, you know, population and involvement all over the world. So if I had to pick, I think that's going to be um, the defining, you know, relationship, um, of global powers for, you know, the next, you know, at least next decade or so. And how do, how do you think climate change fits into that? Because we saw this very interesting dynamic for a couple months during Trump's second or third year, where you had President Xi in China coming out and saying, we're going to continue to abide by the Paris Accord when Trump had pulled out. And suddenly it seemed like China might be the country to lead the world on on a green energy. Um and sustainability. So how do you think Biden navigates that and takes the reins back for America? And, and how, how do you think that plays out? You know, uh, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, you know, with and, and sort of actually we've seen President Xi hesitate a little bit more 
in terms of, I mean, I, not, you know, with the Paris Agreement and just being like, obviously, the Paris Agreement couldn't have happened without the U.S. and China. India also is a very important factor um, as well. But, you know, you also have a lot of, you know, pollution in places like Beijing. You know, you also, um, so I think you can see the U.S. becoming more of a global leader again on climate change, because you've also seen sort of more of a hesitancy out of the Chinese government, given all of the hostile, you know, the hostility between the U.S. and Chinese governments, sort of being like, mm, we're not so sure we want to work with you. There's nothing more for us to do on climate change with the U.S. I think there was a statement from the, uh, from the Chinese uh, government uh, to that uh, uh, effect. So I still think, but it may not be that way either. It could also be a way where the U.S. reasserts its role. Talking about the Glasgow, uh, you know, conference, it's it's a place for you know we have, uh, you know, we have a special envoy, a familiar face, and uh, John Kerry, who's uh, I always like to plug, was the first campaign I worked on in two thousand four. Um, oh, really? And, yeah, you know, um, even though that one uh, didn't work out, he ended up doing some great things in his life and continues to do them. Uh, so, uh, and I, I got to tell him, I went to a talk when he has his book. His book is called Every Day is Extra because he talks about what it was like, you know, during Vietnam. And uh, I got to tell him that he was like, you were my first campaign. And, oh, and he, was, <laughs> and, and uh, he liked that very much. So that was just a nice uh, tidbit. But on the climate change issue, yes, this is a chance for the U.S. to really step up on its global leadership position with folks like John Kerry, who are well known throughout the diplomatic world, having been secretary of state, you know, um, out there, as well as China. You know, there's there's still room, I think, for cooperation. I think it's a chance for President Biden and President Xi, who obviously know each other a long time, uh, as well as leaders, for them to to rally around um, to keep the virus support right. So I, I I see it as only hopefully being a good thing for both countries. Very interesting. And coming to the end of the time here, but last question I want to ask you, and we can see if we can turn it into a positive one, because... Jen Psaki <laughs> did come out today with some positive news saying that 50% of US adults have now been vaccinated, um, which yes. is fantastic. And Biden looks like he's on track to make his goal of 70% of Americans by July 4th, which would be incredible. So how does it look like from inside the US? Do things feel like they're getting back to normal? And do you think that if and when things do, that actually Biden might in a strange way lose some power, lose some impetus and lose some of his mandate with the public? No, I don't think so. Um, but uh, that's answering your second question first. But um, <laughs> on the whole, you know, issue, it, re it really is amazing. It really showed you, and this is something I meant to um, mention in your earlier question about how I feel about Biden-Harris in the first hundred days. I mean, wow, right? 55%. You know, they almost they doubled their 100 days goal, 100 day goal from 100 million to 200 million, right? Of uh, of vaccines. I know I was very happy when I got uh, my vaccine, um, and, and it just really shows you they were left with no plan by the Trump administration. We we all know how terribly mismanaged uh, they handled COVID. And it really shows you what competent, steady leadership can look like with experts who are focused and can handle this area. No, it, it almost feels weird 
having back to normal because we got so used to it, like the way we're talking, you know, now by Zoom and sort of working from home became sort of a custom way of life. But yeah, no, it definitely feels transformative. You I mean, you see it, you know, New York City is, is reopening uh, again movie theaters and, and restaurants and you know the mask mandates are uh uh are gone you know you, you're definitely you definitely see the comeback happening and it's just something in our economy as well as you know in people's health it was such a difficult time as of course you well know and have experienced in the uk to live through but um it's such a relief seeing us on what appears to be hopefully the other end uh, of it. And I think President Biden will be given and remembered very fondly as part of his legacy for really coming in and tackling um, this virus. So, you know, the, uh, nothing but good things to say about, about that. And that's been such an important part of his leadership. And it's just great to see uh, Dr. Fauci getting some respect again and able <laughs> to go on the airwaves and just speak like a doctor rather than having to bat away these ridiculous um ridiculous suggestions from Trump and there was that scene where he's sitting in the in the White House press room while Trump is suggesting injecting yourself with UV light or or whatever he was talking about and Fauci's just got his head down like really embarrassed and we've come a long way from then (laughs) um yes we've run out of time though but Andy it's been really really interesting speaking to you getting your um hearing your experience and getting your expertise on these on these areas of American politics which I think are fascinating everyone around the world right now so thanks so much for sparing an hour to come and speak to us today Joe thank you so much for having me on and I look forward to further discussions of progressive politics spanning our across the pond Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.